Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. Hello, and welcome to this second instalment of our talk series, Thinking Through a Crisis. We're coming to you live from the Joan Sutherland Theatre at the Sydney Opera House, which is, of course, completely empty, save a few extremely diligent and appropriately socially distanced crew who are able to make this all happen. And today we're here to talk about home cooking in isolation because a lot has changed in the last little while and, if possible, we are now more obsessed with food than we ever have been before. Of course, the land that we're on uh, has been the site of home cooking for millennia. Uh, Benelong Point used to be called Chubagali, and it was a food preparation site. We know this because archaeologists have found a midden here. It's Gadigal land, and I would like to pay respect to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, their elders, and any First Nations people who are joining us around the world today. In the far... In the past few months, everything we know in the world has changed and few things more so than the rituals and practices that we have that we have around food, around cooking, around eating, around who we eat with and around where we buy our food. Restaurants are closed or were closed until very recently and for a long time we couldn't have any guests in our homes. The hospitality industry has been completely crushed um, and hugely devastating for so many people. And we've all been cooking at home. So I'm here today with two of our most competent and celebrated home cooks to talk about what's been on the pandemic menu. How have our priorities shifted? What's changed for now? And what might change for good? Annabelle Crabb is a journalist, writer, TV host, cookbook author, avid reader and podcast superstar. And Adam Liao is a television host, has several cookbooks under his belt, as well as a recipe page in the Fairfax Media and one of the better Twitter Twitter outputs in the world. (laughs) Welcome to you both. It's really, really good to have you here in this empty theatre. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's nice to be in human con- contact with somebody, <laughs> no, anybody, no. and especially you. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know if I so, know how to talk to people anymore. I know, no, it's a skill that has been forgotten. And look, I should probably begin this conversation by emphasising that the three of us are all doing pretty well. Um, you know, we all have incomes with which to buy the food that we are cooking in the kitchens that we are able to isolate within. We have healthy bodies in which to consume and digest the food that we're cooking. Uh, We have access to ingredients and all of those things. There are a lot of people who are not so fortunate. Um, We're staring an economic storm down down, down the barrel. And I think that we should really, in this conversation, absolutely acknowledge that many of our friends in the hospitality industry um, who have poured their hearts and souls into restaurants and businesses that they've been building up have had to lay people off, have had to pivot, have had to completely readjust their entire operating model and they're really, really struggling. So I want to, we're talking about home cooking, but I do want to acknowledge that there are people that this time has not been easy for. Um, And I hope that they get back on their feet as soon as it's safe. But bearing in mind how lucky we are, I thought we might start this conversation by going back to the beginning of all of this. It seems like so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> what did you guys stock up on? What did you look in your in your pantry and think, oh, I better panic buy some of that before it gets depleted? What are the pantry items that you decided you could not get through this time without? Well, I'm a 
chronic um, stockpiler of certain things. Just, I don't know why, I always buy cumin powder because I'm just very worried about not being able to have... <laughs> I've already always got about six packets of it. I don't know why that happens. Um, I also get a bit... I get really twitchy when my butter supplies lapse below about a kilo <laughs> in my fridge. So I'm always making sure I do that every anyway. But I actually, when the panic buying happened, I thought it was so irrational and um, worrying and um, and so uncalled for that I kind of hit reverse really. Mm -hmm. I, I bought fewer things than I probably needed, um, just told the kids to ration their toilet paper squares because it seemed like um, I didn't want to exacerbate the problem that was already happening. I did feel nervous about baking powder and I did feel nervous about yeast. Um, so I was worried about those, but um, I didn't ever go out and like break into a shop or anything. I remember that? that moment where I, th I realised how desperate it was and that was when the Potts Point Woolies sold out of carbs altogether. <laughs> right, and then you go into, um, it was a great, it was a great period, that restricted period for understanding how far the panic buying person would go. So you'd be like, well, there'd be no, no flour, but then the gluten-free flour there'd be plenty of. <laughs> you could just like even your seasoned kind of flaming rag on a stick stockpiling radar would just be like, no way, mate, <laughs> not going to do it. I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. How about me, you, Adam? I, I didn't. I didn't panic by all that much. No, I maybe grabbed an extra thing of pasta, an extra tin of tomatoes. The, the one indulgence I guess I did allow myself was I did buy one side of uh, pork belly, so not even that big, about five kilos. I was curing into pancetta and various things really? at the beginning. <laughs> oh, so uh, you were home curing? Yeah, yeah, that, 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 was my, that was my first step for right. just cure a bit of meat there. And then, and then a couple of... Uh, Salt aside of beef, kids, we're going to be yeah. here for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I felt like a, a frontiersman or something. But, uh, you know, yes, the panic buying was irrational, but I also think that there was a bit of wisdom to it. You know, you know this, this concept of the wisdom of crowds where a, a crowd of people, um, a large number of people actually can come up to the solution to a complex situation without ever actually trying to do that. You know, the, the, the classic example is uh, a huge jar of jelly beans and the outliers that ha choose the, the number of jelly beans is too small or way too large kind of cancel each other out and you take the average of all these hundreds of people that are guessing, you get pretty, fairly close to the right answer. I think there's something about the things that we as a country panic bought that were a little bit clever in a way. You know, if you looked at what we bought, we bought flour, we bought uh, pasta, we bought tomatoes. You know, these are all things that are Australian made that were, frankly, we were in no uh, chance of running out of. Um, and they were things that would, if the pandemic got worse or even now, uh, as it's getting better, we're always going to be used anyway. You know, we tended to flock to the Panic things that... buying of zucchini flowers would be really <laughs> bad idea. What, well, exactly, what am I going to do with these, man? If you look at what the country countries bought, they, we bought things that were actually going to be good for us as a nation and good for us as individuals as well. The thing that I asked my wife this question, you know, when I was coming up with this idea in my head of the wisdom of crowds and panic buying, I said, Did, what happened to rice in Japan? And she said... No, nobody, nobody went and bought it. You know, the, the one staple that you would expect uh, people to rush out and buy was rice, but people in Japan didn't buy it because Japan doesn't produce 
a lot of its own rice for eating. You know, most of the rice that comes from Japan comes from overseas. So I actually think that, you know, if, if there was a chance of us running out of flour or uh, pasta, I suspect we actually wouldn't have been panic buying it, you know, because collectively we're all a lot smarter than we think we are. That's an interesting theory and very generous. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you, did you find yourselves, did, did your home cooking get more basic because you weren't cooking for people or did it get more elaborate because you had fewer places to be and were in the home more to be able to sort of supervise things as they as they developed I feel like a lot of people went either way I went to nursery food and I went to um carbs and comfort food and partly because you know I was um in a house with two adults three kids dog and two budgies um and that kind of huddling together thing I think influenced what I felt like cooking so Lots of um, lots of buns and bread and um, even like slices. I went back and made some truly. <laughs> I made a jelly slice very early on that um, I just haven't made for years. But God, delicious classic jelly slice. Um, was that a comfort thing? Do you reckon? Was yeah. that just, just a response to the anxiety that it was just like yeah, going to create that I what really I liked when I was a kid? Yeah. I think I really enjoyed doing that, and the kids really liked it too. Um, so yeah, and I think that whole urge to make simple things, which I'm sure is what's driving you know people making bread and um, so on, is really about stripping back life to its basics and in an uncertain time, convincing yourself that you are able to produce something independently. Mm -hmm. You know, like um, even in politics, you know, we've been talking a lot about sovereignty and this is a huge issue for Australia, you know, as we realise, well, what are the things we, we don't make ourselves and what would we be in a spot if we couldn't import? And then we've asked ourselves a lot of really searching questions about that over the course of the pandemic. Um, I think that's a real issue domestically as well, right? Like if everything stopped and the shops weren't open, what could I make? So the idea about being able to make bread for your family is a really ancient one and I think it's not one that we necessarily articulate very clearly, but the crowds tell you <laughs> that this is a thing, right? And that and, and seeds selling out everywhere too, mm. people wanting to plant some stuff to think, well, when it all comes down, mm. I'll be able to, you know, grow something. It's like end of I days can't. prepping. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I'm sure that's part of the driving force behind all of this. Mm. Yeah, I, I, mean, think, I think we could call it the comfort food pandemic. Anybody yeah. who was studiously avoiding evening carbs kind of put that up, <laughs> yeah. out the window as soon as everything started. You know, certainly, um, yeah, my cooking has always been very simple um, in terms of, you know, I don't run a restaurant. I don't try and cook elaborate meals ever. I have three children also, so there's there's really no chance of that happening of a regular weekday Come on, dinner anyway. Come on, your Instagram, mate. It's not really that simple. Let, incredibly <laughs> spectacular. <laughs> Put it down to good photography because all my meals genuinely are incredibly simple. You know, a couple of things thrown together in a wok or whatever. This old thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think... Annabelle's right. You know, we all strove for a bit of comfort. You know, we, we went back to the foods that we grew up enjoying and we 
it was also, you know, coming to the start of cooler weather, so those hearty stews and braises and things that people were, that, 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 that we find comforting were what we went to. And I think you could also say, you know, back to the panic buy, we all were running out to buy toilet paper. There's an interesting psychology there around, you know, certainly nobody thinks that toilet paper is a necessity for life. You know, we're talking about a threat to literally our lives and we're rushing to go, maybe my butt would feel more comfortable if I get <laughs> a softer variety of toilet paper. But, you know, in the advertising industry, they market toilet paper with fluffy dogs and nice home lives and the, the whole... If you had to put an emotion around toilet paper, the emotion is comfort. It's not practicality, it's actually comfort. And so we... Although the fact that hand towel was selling out at exactly the same <laughs> right. rate does prompt some very uncomfortable <laughs> questions. I kind of I hope think there's going. something Freudian in the whole toilet paper thing as well. Absolutely. But. You know, the, the, those fluffy little dogs running around, you know, that's, that's what you want. And I think we can also see that in what we were cooking as well. You know, I wrote for my column in the papers last week that... Spaghetti bolognese represented practicality, self-sufficiency, you know, comfort food, something that we could all go back to. But I think the sourdough question was a little bit different. It was kind of aspirational. You know, this is, if you have to picture what your house looks like, an idealised version of that is, you know, a rustic country kitchen and fresh bread coming out of the oven. You know, as a thought exercise, I asked myself, if, if we weren't isolating at home, if for some reason, whatever the policy was, you had to isolate with your best friend. I don't think people would be rushing out and buying, trying to make sourdough. I think if you were isolating with your best friend, your idea of what's, what's a perfect way to spend time with my best friend would be chocolates, champagne, chips. You know, those are the things that you would see flying off the shelves. But because we wanted this, firstly, we wanted self-sufficiency in our spaghetti bolognese, but we also wanted to have a good life. And that was what kind of the sourdough represented. Well, I think you've missed something very significant about the sourdough, though, <laughs> which is, it is, I mean, no one's playing footy. We are in a drought of competitive enterprise, right? <laughs> like there is no sport. And so how better can you compete with people with whom you, are, you have a professional relationship perhaps or a competitive friendship relationship, bloody sourdough because, and I'm sorry, men are worse than women. <laughs> like, I'm sorry because, see, I get a little sourdough out of the oven and I think, hey, that wasn't completely crap. But then I know there's a whole, there's a whole competitive legion of sourdough bakers who are like, What's your moisture content? What's your, um, you know, what? Show us uh, the size of your air bubble. Yeah, not so much oven spring on that. What's the blistering on your crust? (laughs) And I just think I'm frightened sometimes to really, you know, share my sourdough, which is a bit cheaty cheat. It's a bit, it's not as wet a dough as it really should be. It was a digital sourdough revolution. (laughs) The number of times I saw on Twitter, because this is the most kind of immediate and (laughs) reply-friendly social media platform, Somebody posts a picture of their first sourdough loaf seconds before there's some guy posting a picture of, oh, yeah, this was mine, and it's always a much better loaf. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. And I'm like, did you just nip down to Flower and Stone? <laughs> no, no one would ever know, right? Yeah, the great irony, of course, is while people were there madly trying to find bread flour for their sourdough, the supermarkets were still full of bread. You know, <laughs> they, We never ran out of bread at any point. We ran out of the things to make bread, but we always had bread. And, I mean, one of the great heroes, I reckon, of this lockdown era has been that fantastic 
and foul-mouthed blogger, I mean, um, YouTube mm. comedian, Nat, from Nat's What I'm Talking <laughs> About. Mm. Nat, it's called That's What I That's Reckon. That's What I Reckon. Yeah. And he's just waged a one funny man campaign against Jar Sauce. <laughs> now, he's performed this incredibly important function because not only, he's had, like, millions of views. He's very funny. But what he's saying is, you people are idiots. Like... Jar sauce is selling out and yet there's fresh food everywhere. Make your own sauce and get on with it. And he actually, he, he does a good cooking yeah, lesson and yeah. it's very, very funny. I think there's something in that too, actually, because when I think about what we're all watching in sort of food-related kind of stuff in... in um, in lockdown, you know, there's, there's, that's what I reckon. There's like that fantastic podcast that Samin Nostrat's been doing about right. home cooking. Like all I want to do in my life at the moment is listen to Samin tell me how to like soak my beans. Well, I just like her to come and live with me. I mean, that's essentially what we're all looking for. She is excellent. She's so, and, and you know, the premise of that podcast is like, what do I still have in my pantry that I can cook in? And I, it just occurs to me that there's a huge sort of that this has brought about a really sudden democratization of food culture. You know, there's been an elitism around sort of food culture. It's like, oh, you know, where do you go to get this particular ingredient? You know, your mandarin vinegar or whatever it is that you what, just. Is that like... a personal shot against me? Because I'm speaking <laughs> about mandarin vinegar personally to you. <laughs> I thought you'd let me get away with that. Nope. <laughs> okay, guys, I just uh, discovered mandarin. Yeah, vinegar. yeah, it's 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 really good. Um, but you know, there was there is this sort of idea that that you know people who are good cooks have um, access to some sort of special knowledge or some kind of right. special sort of source of of ingredients or whatever. Whereas you know, people like Nat and Samine and stuff are like, hell no! Like you know, if you don't have the fancy ingredients in yeah. your, doesn't paramatter. Yeah. You know, just just cook with cook with what you've got and cook healthy, fresh stuff, and that's all you need to do. And I wonder whether what what you think about that. I think that's true up to a point. I mean, as you mentioned at the beginning of this session, you've got to always keep in mind that if you're in a position to have a lovely period of experimentation in your home, it means that you um, have an income or at least security and you're not getting kicked out of your house and you have time that is not spent worrying about where your next buck is coming from to, you know, tend to your sourdough or whatever. So, like, with that caveat, I agree. I think that... Um, that innovation and um, invention has taken on, I think, a, a value that um, is really important and quite powerful. And that's true not just among home cooks or, or cookbook writers. It's particularly true in the restaurant sector. I mean, you've got this um, quite um, precarious business model on a good day that has been forced to adapt to just catastrophic circumstances. And it is amazing to see what some restaurants have done in order to keep their businesses alive and to adopt this new model of, you know, pick up, take out, pick up the ingredients from us and go home and make the food yourself, which is really fascinating to see. Mm. And I think it's probably unpicked a bit of the... Um, it, it's democratised restaurant eating a bit right. too, right? Like because the circumstances of the hour dictate that the fancy restaurant that you've been um, waiting to get into or dreaming about getting into for years can't um, operate in the same way that it always has. So they've got to do more simple food um, that you can take away that will stand up to um, the takeaway experience. And so they've got to rethink it in a more simple way, which mm. is, um, I'm sure... 
um, confronting but also really fascinating. And it becomes generally more accessible as well, doesn't it? Mm. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. I just saw um, um, <coughs> Blue Hill Farm is now putting out a takeaway box with like a carrot and a... <laughs> but it's the best carrot ever. <laughs> <laughs> I think for, for home cooking, yeah, I, I said to my wife the other day, you know, I, I think I understand cooking now, today, a lot better than I ever have in my entire life, a lot better than I did two months ago. Um, and I spend a lot of time looking at home cooking from a lot of different angles and, and people cook at home for very different reasons. For some people it's a hobby, for some people it's fuel, for some people it's a chore, for some people it's just, you know, something to keep the kids quiet for half an hour. But it's never really been a necessity and I don't want to over-egg the pudding too much because we can all still get takeaway if you want to. If you, you're missing yum cha, call up your local Chinese place and you'll get it delivered by a, a guy on a bike very soon. But... I, I kind of was thinking about it in, in the context. So a couple of years ago I went back to my grandfather's village, rural Chinese village that he left when he was a teenager nearly 100 years ago now. And there, in, in a village like that, everyone's doing the same job. You know, these days they're pineapple farmers. Um, everyone's living in pretty much the same house, uh, nearly identical in terms of floor plan and layout and everything. And, and the, the one thing that is kind of different, I mean, people are cooking with the same ingredients as well, is kind of how good a cook you are. You know, that was the, the difference in your quality of life mm. when everyone else around you was doing exactly the same thing in exactly the same location was who's good at doing this and who's good at doing that. And, and you know, maybe you're, you're swapping the chilli sauce with your next, from your next door neighbour to something that you're better at, that, that you're, you make good buns or something. But I think cooking now in this pandemic became a lot more important, not just, you know, I, I made dumplings and it was the first time I've ever made dumplings. I made dumplings thousands of times before. It was the first time I ever made dumplings because I had to, you know. <laughs> and I didn't have to make dumplings. You know, it was forcing me to make dumplings, but I had some mince that was going to go bad and I had uh, kids who wanted to eat dumplings, not now, but maybe in a week's time, and we had no dumplings in the fridge and I didn't want to go out and order it and I didn't want to do all those things. So I ended up sitting there of an evening folding dumplings by myself because for the first time in my life, I kind of, not specifically, but I kind of had to. So how does that change your relationship with food and cooking? Like what, what, what is that shift? I mean, you have to do it. There's the necessity there. But, but is there something kind of deeper? I think, it, I think it makes food a lot more honest. You know, food hasn't been a hobby for me for a long time. You know, it was a fantastic hobby when I was just, you know, a single guy doing it for fun. I love cooking, but it's not a hobby. You know, I do it for my family. I do it for practical reasons. And understanding that it kind of got rid of any last vestiges of wankiness <laughs> I had in, in my food. You know, there, there was... There's always a little bit of, uh, you know, I'm going to make this a little bit special. Um, and it kind of just got rid of that, you know. I, I don't, now I truly don't care for that at all. I, st I still want to cook good food, but I, I, and I, and I, I guess I still want to impress people, you know. I want to impress my family. I want to impress the people that, that, I'm, that I'm serving it to. Maybe even I want to I impress people on Instagram. But I just want food now, for me, I just want it to be as honest as possible. I think chefs are seeing that as well. You know, Annabelle was talking about the restaurant situation and um oh, I mean I guess we'll probably talk a little bit more about that later but a chef wrote to me on Twitter and said right now and because because I'd written that I thought that the things that we were seeing out of the restaurant industry right now were genuinely exciting you know not just in terms of changing the business model but the style of food that chefs were cooking 
I think has been hampered a little bit over the last decade or two by restaurants feeling like they have to do something that competes with their peer group or that appeals to critics or mm. copies what some guy over in Scandinavia is doing. You know, that's what cooking should be. And so you don't really feel as creative as you want to be. You don't really feel that you have the licence to do what you really want. And now necessity has forced a lot of chefs and restaurateurs to to cook. And this, this uh, chef wrote to me back on Twitter. He said, chefs are now cooking what we want to eat. And it was just as simple as that. You know, chefs have a long time have cooked things that they think they should cook, but now chefs are cooking what they want to eat. And it's, I think it's going to be a really good thing for the restaurant industry. I also think it's a way... Um, the point that you make about um, restaurants sort of existing for each other on some level is a really important one because one thing that I've noticed about restaurants around me or, you know, that I've been to or watched and seen what they've been doing in the lockdown is that they've been subsumed back into the community in a really big way. So, I mean, I know a couple of chefs, um, one in my area, Gavin Carfax Foster, who's just cooking meals and um, serving the neighbourhood, like, you know, and you go and pull up and he'll load your meals out and you get three at a time or whatever. Um, and that is like a local institution now because it's like what we're doing with each other as neighbours, just like, well, you haven't got any yeast, I've got some yeast or whatever, which was happening during the lockdown. And I think there's lots of restaurants too, like um, Sagro is one that I can mm. think of that's, um, you know, feeding people who need to be fed, you know, performing a community service that is about integration with people more than it is about competition or getting a hat or all of that. Um, and when I walk around my area and see restaurants that are now but they're becoming grocery stores, they are um, capitalising on their sourdough starters or, you know, they're finding different ways to be useful in their own communities, which is is a kind of a wonderfully honest uh, thing. Um, and I guess, I mean, I know you, um, Edwina, read that great article mm. in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago by that... Gabrielle um, Harrison. Gabrielle Harrison, who's... Little restaurant prune in Manhattan. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, place. absolutely yeah. extraordinary piece of writing. But she's asking herself, why is it I've been running this successful restaurant? She's got a, you know, done food shows and written a couple of cookbooks. She's a successful chef by any measure, and yet still was operating on a knife edge with her little restaurant. And this has all caused her in the lockdown to think, what purpose do I serve? You know, what am I, what am, what's my job? Um, and it's a very moving piece of writing, um, but I think that the processes that lots of restaurants are going through now are about thinking about that business model um, and whether it's survivable well, long term. I, uh, the restaurant business model has been in trouble for a long time right. in Australia. You know, you, 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 I don't think anyone in that industry looks at the way it was last year and the year before and thinks that this is going to continue and end up in a good place for the restaurant industry. So as, as much as this crisis has been catastrophic for the industry, it's also provided a really interesting opportunity. And you're seeing a lot of chefs, you know, with incredible fighting spirit, really capitalising on that. You know, you talk, think, I'm thinking of Shane D'Elia down in Melbourne who has started, you know, there's chefs who are doing ingredient delivery and then cooking with you on Zoom. There's chefs that are doing 
Providor boxes, you know, making sauces and chutneys and things and selling that out of the restaurants. Chefs that are, you know, providing the community service, giving away food to hospitality workers uh, who are out of a job because so many are. And um, in a way, you know, you can't have a business model like restaurants have, go through a crisis like this and then go back to the way it was. You wouldn't want to. Um, and in a way, I think that this crisis has allowed a lot of restaurants to really establish, you know, as something as simple as home delivery. If home delivery, you know, there's a lot of restaurants that wouldn't want to lower themselves to home delivery three months ago that now are surviving on it or maybe not surviving but declining slightly less uh, quickly on that. And restaurants in Australia have been a value-added business where we haven't, as a public, seen the value in paying enough for the value that's added, if you know mm. what I mean. Yeah. And so you've got volume business, you know, volume restaurants have never really had a problem. If you're a fast food restaurant or a fish and chip shop, you know, churning that out, people are, they're probably doing just as well as they always have been, you know, because people are eating a lot more delivery. But as a value added business, I think the model has been really broken for restaurants for a long time. And as interesting as the food and the delivery models and the business models that we've seen in the pandemic have been, I think there's going to be a lot more interesting things to come out of it. Well, I think one of the things that this has done is kind of in a really fundamental way change the relationship of restaurants with community. Mm. I mean, like, like, you know, there are always a few sort of locals who have a good close relationship with the people that run their kind of, you know, the, the restaurants in their community. But, but then there was this sort of upper tier of like, rate restaurants or whatever. And I think, I think again, it's sort of been a, a shift in that. But one of the things that I'm interested in when you're talking about, you know, chefs saying that they're cooking the food that they want and, you know, we're talking about how our home cooking focus is shifting to more kind of comfort food. You know, Annabelle, you host a show called Home in Time for Dinner, which looks at sort of food trends decade by decade, yeah. and, and each decade is quite distinct, right? There's, there's a sort of food character sure. for each decade, and, and we're at the beginning of a new decade now. And I'm wondering how you think COVID-19 and lockdown and the crisis in the restaurant industry is going to mark the 2020s? Is there, you know, what, what do you think is going to be, you know, the, the dishes really or the trends of the, of the 2020s? Such a good question. And I wish you'd given me a bit of notice to think about it. <laughs> I only just thought well, of it. Well, I think um, if I just think about what's happened to the way I've thought about preparing food at home and try and boldly extrapolate that to the entire globe, which is, you know, fair enough, right? I think one of the things that I've found really exciting about cooking at home at this time is cooking in an age of scarcity or perceived scarcity and thrift, right? Like, and you're right, we, um, our show Back in Time for Dinner, we've just made a whole new series, which is about to go to air, which um, was set uh, starting in the 1900s. And so we have our family going through... The Depression. Yeah, yeah. well, starting with the plague <laughs> and then going through um, World War One. Um, the Depression, World War Two, and all of these vast global events that um, that changed the way people ate. And um, what's been interesting over the whole life of that series, where you analyse history through food, has been this relationship of um, circumstances of adversity to styles of cooking. And I think even in that little experiment that we've just had of two months of lockdown... It's taught us to think about scarcity and how would I cook so as to eke out or avoid entirely this ingredient that I can't get or 
to really value it and honour it when I can get it. Um, and that happened, you know, during the Depression. Of course, if you were lucky enough to get a sh shorter supply of food, you'd really treat it like an absolute prince. And the, the puzzle and strategy of dealing with leftovers, making sure that you use every bit of um, the animal or the vegetable is actually um, quite a quite a compelling, quite an absorbing task. And I've really, you know, I've really enjoyed that strategic task of how am I going to use all of this up and how am I going to mm. um, make something that utilises what I've got now um, rather than thinking what shall I pop out to the shops to get so that I can make this transition. Thing like one of them is I've made Adam Liao's master stock, which <laughs> has been um, a revelation because I think we got we got a couple of chickens, roasted them, and I thought I'm not throwing those carcasses out. There's something else I can do um, with the carcasses. So I made stock and then, you know, so thanks, Adam. Oh, um, well, always but, happy to be of service. And I, I, well, I don't know. What would I know? But I, I wonder if that whole process that we've just been through does have an effect on what becomes popular or the way people's brains start to work around food mm -hmm. over the next little while. Yeah, I, I, I'm a big believer of in food being, I guess, a product of its times rather than anything else. So I think if we spent long enough thinking about it, we could almost reverse engineer and work out what the dish of the next decade would be. Because yeah, I go think, on then. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> 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 kind of put it on the spot. But you can, you can see what people want now, um, very simply. We want fresh ingredients. We want uh, healthy food. I think right now we want uh, food that has a bit of community and communality to it. Um, so I'm not saying that, you know, fondue for the new generation or anything like that, but I, I think things that can sit on a table and be shared would be something like that, you know. Um, maybe poached chicken, you know, something, something like that, something, you know, simplicity, health, uh, fresh ingredients, probably more leaning towards the vegetable side of things. You know, once we start to see simple dishes that come out that are fulfilling that criteria of where I think the headspace of the Australian home cook is right now, I think that's going to be what defines the 2020s. Poached chicken. He's, yes, he's predicted it. <laughs> <laughs> so when we talk about the Australian home cook, um, I wonder how we sort of think about, because I think this whole lockdown period and everybody being forced to become super self-sufficient has... Um, potentially had some interesting ramifications on traditional gender roles, right? You know, I mean, typically the women are the masters of the home kitchen, whereas the men are the masters of the professional kitchen. And I know that's really been breaking down in recent time, but there's still quite enduring social tropes that exist. Do you think that, um, that this has been a moment for, you know, throwing Australian heterosexual families back to the 50s <laughs> or do you think that it's been an opportunity for the um, the husbands, the straight husbands of Australia to stand up and, 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 and have their moment? Um, I would love to say that I think that's what's happening. Um, I think there's certainly a lot more enforced, you know, family time, um, in Australian households, that's true. I think you've got to be careful about lumping cooking in with other domestic um, work. Because it's unpaid. kind of showy and... Mm. Right. So I think there is a little bit of um, am I cooking because I feel like cooking and I want to do a bit of a, you know, 
here's my special dish or am I cooking because someone's got to cook and someone's got to cook every single day, several times a day. And I think um, one of the things that's happening inside Australian households right now is you've got people who are stressed and anxious about their work and whether they can do it from home, which um, some lucky people can and many, many people can't. Um, and there's also this massive backloading of extra hours of unpaid work in the form of um, supervising children who are learning from home um, and caring for children who are younger than school age and the extra domestic work that comes from having a family that's in their house 24-7 rather than everybody being out of it during the day. So there are, there's, in many cases, I think, comparable hours of paid work happening but with all of this extra workload chucked in. Now, some of that's about cooking and some of it isn't. Um, I... I don't know exactly what's going on, but I suspect that the division of labour around those extra hours created by children being in the house more is probably being picked up by women more than it is by men. I'm not sure if the, the crisis has a, a huge impact on those gender roles for all the reasons that, that Annabelle has gone through. I think it's probably more generational just because... You know, if you were Gen X, you know, dad probably wasn't in the kitchen all that much. And if you were a Gen X dad, you probably aren't in the kitchen all that much. But um, the, the, the difference with cooking, I guess, it's not just deciding to do it and being comfortable doing it. There's actually a, a, a degree of knowledge you have to have picked up often over years to be able to do it. Not, I'm not going to say competently, but efficiently. For it to make sense for you to do the cooking, you actually have to know how to cook. Right. And, and there's a lot of and people kind of... Sense to everyone who's going to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> right? Exactly. I'd say that sort of at that millennial age, which is you know, up to, I think millennials can be 40 years old now, um, <laughs> I don't think you see very much of a gender divide um, yeah. in cooking. Uh, and you, certainly not as you get into, you know, your... I don't even know Gen Zs or whatever, whatever the the, the very young um, generation is called now. Certainly, at that point, I don't think you're seeing much of a gender divide in that, and that will, you know, when today's twelve year old or thirteen year old is starting a family, then you'll start to see more equality there. I mean, I, maybe I'm biased because I'm a man who does all the home cooking, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, the people I interact with on social media and things are yeah. very, you know, still, you know, I would say majority women. Um, but there are, there's certainly no stigma against a man in the kitchen of people of my age and younger. One thing I would say is that um, one of the issues that I think this lockdown really is addressing is the invisibility of domestic work because yeah. um, I think, I mean, I've seen this again and again in people that I've interviewed for stuff that I've written and also even seeing interviews with people published during this lockdown period, um, particularly when families have young children and things are just crazy and you've got a primary breadwinner or a principal breadwinner and then um, a, another parent, usually the mum um, in Australian heterosexual families, nuclear families, um, who works part-time or, you know, does a bit more of a juggling thing. One of the ongoing beefs is... Um, nobody understands how much work I do in the home, right? And, like, because if the stuff's just done, then 
when the primary breadwinner gets home from work, work and it's done, there's no... There's no visibility. Right, there's no visibility because it's been done. So, um, and I think that's a source of huge stress a lot of the time in relationships. So when you're all there and you can see what needs to be done and how much work it takes to do it, then that is a real, that's a significant thing to see and to which, you know, yeah. a person can bear witness. And I think that's really useful and interesting. It's also completely exploded the myth that you can keep your domestic life and your work life separate. Oh, you know, yeah. that's, no, no, nobody pretends that that oh, happens that's anymore. Good. That's yeah. good. I yeah. mean, we've all seen some dreadful things in Zooms, haven't we? You know, and like, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. I mean, and um, I'm so looking forward to reading all the research about how people have changed, how employers have changed their expectations. I've anecdotally talked to. Um, lots of people in different bits of the food chain in organisations um, and I've heard a range of um, conclusions including, well, when people work from home you know exactly, you can see their productivity because you see what they're producing, not they're buzzing around the office or, you know, you, you learn who the productive people are. I think that's a really interesting um, take out. Yeah, um, I think we do have to acknowledge that this is a crisis that is definitely not one size fits all. You know, yes, yeah, true. there are, if you're lucky enough to be able to work from home and you're yeah, lucky enough to have a home to work from, you know, you could play, make an argument to say that, <laughs> back to my wisdom of crowds thing, if you are making sourdough in this crisis, you're one of the luckiest people on the planet because it means that you have an oven, it means that you have disposable income, it means that you have a house and, you know, you're able to have a job and work from home, you know, and all of these things. Um, so for some people, the idea of cooking has been has gone completely out the window because now they're essential workers or, you know, working in an abattoir and they're not able to work from home and they're having to rush home from work, from home, to take kids who might be with a relative or something, if that's even allowed, you know, there has been huge segments of the society have had no free time at all in this. You know, maybe if you were working from home and you had no children and all your children were independent, maybe you find yourself with an awful lot of free time through this. But I know that there are a lot of families who laugh at the idea of having any free time in this period at all. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean... As we're kind of cautiously moving out of full lockdown and, you know, now we can have people in our houses again and we can... How do you think that this period has influenced the idea of a meal as a ritual? You know, like a meal as a, as a place where you come together, you meet friends, you have them over for dinner and you cook something or you meet in a restaurant and you... In, you know, that, that whole sort of idea of the ritualised social aspect of mealtimes, which has been blown up in the last couple of months. How will that reconfigure and reform itself? I think there's, you know, the, we've gone from, I guess, this idea of meal as a forum, you know, whether you're at home or you're in a restaurant, most of the conversations we have are over meals um, with people that we don't work with. You know, our business conversations happen on in offices and um, over Zooms now, but for talking to your parents, for talking to your kids, for talking to your partner, that kind of use usually happens over mealtimes. When everyone's stuck together, you're talking to them all day. And so, you know, we've come to playing games, like word games, over meals in our family. So we 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 know what happened in the day. There's no reason to ask <laughs> a kid what happened at school today when you were the teacher. <laughs> but uh, this idea of meal as a, as a forum is kind of 
gone away, but meal as occasion hasn't, you know. Mm. Mealtimes have really been what have punctuated the days uh, here. They, they can tend to flow from one to the other, but I'm sure I'm not the only one who finishes breakfast and thinks maybe not with my stomach, but with my head, what are we going to do for lunch? Yeah, okay, and true. then what are we going to do for dinner? Yeah. And that's and the first thing my kids ask every morning, <laughs> what's for dinner tonight? It's like a real... Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a marker in the day and um, I think... Well, the way that I think about cooking and making food for other people, because I'm a, like a massive feeder, it's really contracted. I'm just thinking about my family <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. And I'm scared about the idea of cooking for bigger groups of people. I'm just not sure if I'm up to it anymore. <laughs> just like I'm not sure if I'm up to putting pants on anymore. Like it's just very, it's confronting. I think what the dinner party of? menu is going to be very different for <laughs> after this, you know. Yeah. Certainly, you know, when I was, when I first started having dinner parties when I was in my 20s, it was... They were elaborate. You know, what we was would, your most pretentious ever oh, this was, meal? Can this you was the nineties, so it was. Wow. <laughs> it was probably like a pesto stuffed chicken breast or something yeah. with sun dried tomatoes on, on top. On a you know. giant white plate. <laughs> <back here. laughs> but you know, we'd print out menus and kind of things, and we'd set the table and everything. But um, I think now, just any any chance to have friends over for anything, you know, take it out of a pot, slop it on a plate. You know, that's that's the kind of dinner party that I want to have from now on. I don't want anything pretentious at all. Mm. So. One question just from a purely practical thing that I've been thinking about, how are we going to have dinner parties in our house? Like how are we going to socially distance in our house? Is that is that going to be possible? I don't know. Is that what you're nervous about, Annabelle, or is it more the no, kind I'm of... No, just, I'm just nervous about the... Um about just having to coordinate food for more than five people. I just, you know, I think it's, I think I might have forgotten how to do it. I don't know. And you know how, I mean, I, you probably never get this, Adam, but um, I get it all the time where I think, what do I cook? I can't remember what I cook. What do I cook? I don't know. What do I normally cook? You've got to go back through Instagram. Yeah. You've just got to remind yourself of <laughs> the things that you do. Two cookbooks. I can't remember one single thing that I've ever made. But, um, yeah, it's just like when you get into a writing, a reading freeze or something, you're like, I don't feel like reading any book that's ever been written. But um, I think I'll get through this. It's just I think I've got so used to planning and enjoying planning on the basis of who's in my house and what's in my pantry. Like in... There's something very reassuring about that because you think, I know what I've got, I know how many kids I've got, here's what I'm going to make. So I guess, I, I guess I'm the cocoon effect of that is something I might find tricky to break out of, I think, yeah. So we've talked about comfort food, we've talked about fresh ingredients and we've talked about no waste, but is there anything kind of culturally intrinsic that you would like to take to the other side of this, you know, like 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 in terms of the way that we cook, share meals, eat food, shop for food? What have we learnt? How, how can we turn this into a teaching moment? What I would love is for that kind of neighbourhood spirit to really persist. And, you know, when something... Um, I always remember I was on the Tube once in London. This is going to be more relevant than it seems. Um, and on the Tube, nobody ever looks at each other, doesn't, nobody makes eye contact, and something quite bad has to happen before people start talking to each other. I remember on, like, a really cold night, um, we were on the Tube and it broke down and um, sat there for, like, 20 minutes and still no-one's looking at each other. And then this guy came over the loudspeaker and just said, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to apologise for this truly crappy service. <laughs> and it was the greatest moment because everybody laughed. And then five minutes later, everyone's showing each other pictures of their grandkids and, you know. And I think sometimes 
when a group of people who are a bit overloaded and sort of studiously avoiding each other and not wanting to make eye contact and create relationships that might be difficult to maintain later on or whatever, when something bad happens, all of a sudden you're out talking about it. And, you know, I've probably um, enjoyed more than anything else um, just this sort of community, I don't know, I've just taken more food to people's houses and received more food and mm -hmm. talked to people just in my little geographical area um, and that's been wonderful. Who's got this? Who's got that? You know, and I think it would be pretty great if that persisted. Adam? I think, I think it's great to see food becoming important again because I think it is important, not just because I like to eat good food, but for some of the reasons we talked about before about how food can be a tool to live a good life, I think it's also, you know, I, I get asked a lot from, by people, you know, how do you find the time to make meals for your family every day? And part of it is I don't really cook difficult food. I cook meals that are very quick, but also for me it's not food is not the afterthought. It is actually I will plan my day so I can cook that meal. I will forego other things so I can cook that meal. And it's not just because I want to take a photo of it. It's not because I want to feed my kids that, you know, my memories of my childhood were of dishes and of dinner tables and I kind of want my kids to have that too. But also, you know, if you, if you look at it economically, you know, we talked a little bit about self-sufficiency of a, of a country, 89 cents out of every dollar that we spend in Australia on food is Australian food. That other 11 cents that is imported is generally processed food. You know, we are a net exporter of food. We are a primary producer of food. We're an agricultural country. And if we want to, I guess, engage with our domestic economy, if we want to engage with our health, if we want to engage with our families, the one thing that actually brings all that together is actually looking at food as being important again. For years, we've tried to, we've kind of fallen into that marketing trap where marketing tells us that food's difficult, so you need this product that's a shortcut. You know, even, you know, love him to death, Jamie Oliver, but this idea of we need 15-minute meals because food is too hard for you, let me give you something that will prevent you from having to cook. You know, that is... I think back, backwards way of looking at it. You know, it's how can you find more time in your day so that you can actually make a proper meal because then you'll talk to your kids more because then you'll eat better because then you'll be healthier. You know, these, it is kind of, it's an important thing and I think we've kind of forgotten in, in the past how important food actually is for these other aspects of our life. Well, I think so that's really true and I think that's a really good place to finish this conversation about, about COVID eating. Thank you so much, Adam and Annabelle, for coming into this beautiful empty theatre and sitting oh, with me yeah. for the last 45 minutes. And thank you for joining us from home. I hope that whether you're going down to your newly opened local restaurant or cooking for friends or just staying at home with your family or on your own tonight, you enjoy whatever you eat. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.